Ahoy, listeners. This intertidal podcast is going to take us into the world of conservation technology with one of the real pioneers of this idea that we could tech out the world, tech out the planet, and use it to get us the data we need to make better decisions and maybe make a better planet. And that's Shah Selby. I'm delighted to have him on the show today. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things, including the perils of doing conservation technology. It can be dangerous. You should have a fire extinguisher. We're going to talk about requirements, which is not exactly like the room of requirements in Hogwarts, but in this case, a bit more of an engineering term where you specify exactly what you need a set of hardware or software to do, and then you get people to deliver that, or you build it yourself. We're going to talk a little bit about the Internet of Things, which is a very buzzwordy thing. Sometimes people might call it IoT, and that's just letting different devices talk directly to each other rather than all having to go through one centralized system. That can be tiny sensors out in the world. It can be more complex systems of cameras and devices and satellites that let you monitor what's going on a boat from far, far, far away. So sit yourself someplace comfortable and think about the wide, wide world, in particular the parts of the world that don't have regular internet or even constant electricity, and how you might get out there and discover more about those parts of the world. Shah, thank you for joining me today on our virtual coffee date to talk about all things data and tech and conservation. Introduce yourself and give me the two sentence of your background, because it's a long background. So what's your kind of short version? Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, my name is uh, Shah Selby. I am a conservation technologist. Um, and so basically what that means is I build technologies, uh, develop and deploy technologies that are that are focused on you know, wildlife conservation and environmental protection as the core user. Um, and we can talk more about that. Um, my, my background is actually in engineering. So I had a previous life where I was working on satellite uh, propulsion systems and did that for, for about 11 years before I got into the conservation space. Uh, and I, and I'm, I founded a, a nonprofit tech development lab called Conservify that basically works with NGOs and universities and, uh, you know, passionate scientists about figuring out how to create new tools that are, you know, cheaper, more scalable, uh, more effective than, than what, what's currently out there. Um, so I'm, I'm also a, an explorer and a fellow with the National Geographic Society, and, um, and I uh, work on a lot of projects with, with folks from that world as well. And you're currently sitting in your lab in downtown LA. Is that where it still is? Yes, I'm. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in our our lab. I actually came in, um, but no one else is here to you know practice good social distancing. Um, and and our our labs in downtown uh, downtown LA, which you know isn't a hotbed of conservation uh, organization locations, you know, but. But, uh, but it gives us a lot of great opportunities to kind of get the tools and the support that we need to build these sorts of systems. And it is a good place in case you, hypothetically speaking, accidentally cut into a battery when you're breaking something down and set off the sprinkler systems for everybody. Yeah, well, yeah, actually, I, 
I did that before. I, and, and it's kind of funny, you know, we're, we're in this big building, we're on the 11th floor, and, and I had never actually seen the fire doors shut off an entire elevator system before, but it did when, you know, I was, I taste, was testing out this new case for this, for some electronics that we made, and I was a little too enthusiastic about closing the case, and it broke open a battery and just created the most obscene amount of smoke that you, you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> set off the entire building, the building fire alarm. Oh, conservation technology. It's a learning process. Oh, yeah. It's a wild <laughs> so, field. So a lot of what I'm talking about in this podcast is about learning more about the Earth and the planet and, and why we want to gather more data and get to know it better. And I spent the first four sessions particularly talking about fish and oceans because that has been my jam for so long. But now that I'm talking more about some of these broader technology and data questions about you know, measuring and monitoring and understanding the planet, I'm curious about your time working in the space side of things, because there's been this kind of friendly rivalry between like ocean people and space people or planet people and space people where the planet people are all like, oh, come on, like, there's so much unexplored here on Earth. And space people are like, no, Mars, the universe, like... And so there has been a little bit of that tension. So I'm curious, you started in Space World, and was it just a, a fluke that you decided to turn your eyes back to this planet? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a fluke. You know, I, I had always been um, somebody who has considered themselves an environmentalist. You know, I spent a lot of time scuba diving. I loved being out in nature. Um, but you know, like many people might still believe, I always saw like that side of my personality being completely separate from what I did professionally. And what I did professionally was very technical, hard engineering sort of work, you know. And for a really long time, I just thought there was no way to marry those two things together. Um, and it wasn't until I went back to grad school while I was working that I kind of was exposed to this opportunity space that that I find conservation technology just in. And that, you know, that was about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. So it's sort of like you went out on the far edge of your orbit into space and then you saw this curve and you could come back and you're like, oh, right, Earth. I can do all this with Earth, too. This is great. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, to be honest, from an, from an engineering perspective, I've kind of went from something that is very inaccessible and difficult to do to something that's that's pretty inaccessible and very difficult to do. And, and we have since moved into doing a lot of terrestrial stuff that's way, way easier compared to like building tech that you're putting out into the ocean or even building tech that you're going to put, you know, launch on a rocket and put up in orbit around the Earth, right? So, so it's like varying levels of, you know, when we do the, the engineering, the design work around something, how able are we to actually do anything about it once it leaves our hands? When you launch right. something into space, you can't do anything about it. If it fails, you're screwed, you know. Um, in the oceans, sometimes you can bring it back and, and, and fix it. Um, sometimes you can't. Um, and it's also very, quite difficult to build things to go into the oceans. Um, and then a lot of the terrestrial work we do now, it's, um, we're still pretty remote and working on these, in these areas that it takes quite, quite a lot to get out there. But the ability to go back and fix mistakes or, or change things is, is, uh, is a lot more possible now. 
And you sometimes get to see how nature interacts with the things you put out in it in a way that you don't in those more remote environments. By remote, yeah. I mean the deep ocean and space, right? I love those images of people going out to check their data loggers or their camera traps and opening up the box. And there's just a big old gopher snake curled up in that warm battery area, just oh, hanging yeah. out. Yeah, and I mean, we 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 actually in the corner of the lab we have what what I like to call the museum. That's a bunch of hardware that we've brought back from the field. So you know, we have this data buoy that we built that traveled down this boiling river in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon in there, and it's, and it's melted and, and messed up in the ways that you would think a boiling river would do to due to some technology. Um, we there was one of them that I didn't didn't be able to bring back from a, from an expedition, but I was doing some work in in um, Namibia and we had one of our sensors that got chewed on by a hyena. And I, I mean, I would have loved to bring that thing back and put it up in the lab as a, <laughs> as, as a testament to how difficult these things can be. But what happened to it? Why couldn't you bring it back if you knew it was chewed on by a hyena? Did, yeah, cause it still was, did our, the hyena take it back? No, yeah, our, our partners in, in that project, they wanted to hold on to that one, so. Yeah, that's a pretty good trophy to have. <laughs> so, Let's talk about your current big endeavor about field kit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the past, I would say that a lot of the projects that we work on that Conservify have been, you know, we always partner up with, a, with a, another organization. So that's like an NGO or a lab at a university. And, you know, that other organization will typically bring the requirements around uh, what sort of science accuracies, things like that, that we need to kind of design our pro products to. And over that time, when we were working with various people, we started seeing that there was this there was this desire for better tools in the environmental sensing space. Um, and and you can kind of see some of that desire because there's a lot of people right now that are actually going out and they're trying to develop their own tools to measure the environment and and making use of things like. Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. This is even stuff that I had done a lot in the early days. Uh, there's a there's a lot of excitement around doing that stuff, and the reason why is because a lot of the tools that are out there to measure these things are expensive, they're clunky, the user interfaces are usually it's usually horrible. Um, they're not really compatible with each other, uh, and and now as we move into this kind of next phase of of Internet of Things kind of technologies, a lot of them are being kind of uh, captured under these these data agreements, data plans, things where like that company owns your data and can't actually do anything interesting with it. Um, so we st we started to see this opportunity that exists that you know maybe there's a way that we could leverage a lot of the the innovation you've seen in electronics and manufacturing and being able to create these like really great things for much cheaper. And at the same time, strive for the same sort of scientific rigor uh, that you see in some of these expensive tools. So this little opportunity space that we were looking at, we decided that we wanted to try and fill it with a product of our own. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we came up with the idea of FieldKit. So what FieldKit is uh, at a high level is it's, it's three things. One, it's a, it's a hardware, modular hardware, hardware platform. So you know, we create our own versions of low-cost data loggers and sensor modules. And to give you an example of what kind of sensors, so we have a lot of water quality stuff right now, so pH and conductivity and dissolved oxygen. We've created weather stations. We've create, we're creating air quality stuff as, as we speak. We have this big, long list of sensor modules that we want to create. The second piece of FieldKit is an app. Um, and the reason why we went with an app is because 
you know, most everybody in the world now interfaces with the internet through apps, right? And and we knew that using this app, we could help to kind of uh, interface with the hardware in a more user-friendly way, but, but at the same time also try and provide context around what people are doing, allow them easy ways to collect really important metadata that, that will go into if the data that they're collecting about the world around them. Um, and, and, and like train the user about best practices, lots of things that we wanted to try and do with the app. Um, and then the final bit is fieldkit.org, which is the, the website. And, you know, that logged in portion of the website ha- actually now has this very robust data visualization platform that allows you to kind of take all that data that you've collected using your sensors and share it with other people or manipulate it and explore it and kind of look at different sort of things. And, and on that side of things, we're, we're building it uh, with what I think is, you know, kind of one of the most forward thinking approaches in terms of like data ownership and privacy and the longevity behind the data and things like that is like, we're really kind of putting a lot of that ownership outside of us. We, we want the, the user to have full autonomy and power when it comes to their own data um, and be able to leave it in FieldKit if they want, take it to whatever other uh, systems that they'd like to use. And we're building like kind of the API that allows them to, to do all, all that sort of stuff. So it's really portable data. That's, yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. Totally. It's, it's very portable. And and what we really wanted is we wanted to build something that was super modular and really allowed, you know, whoever was using it to, to build their own field kit. And so that modularity in the hardware means that, you know, you can have a weather station that's also measuring things like dissolved oxygen in water if you'd like to do that. And that's something that there's not currently another product that allows you to do that, right? It's very difficult to measure two things that like people don't usually measure together. Um, but with FieldKit, we kind of allow that. Um, and we think about the same thing with with the FieldKit.org and, and how we interface with other other systems that are currently out there and how we can bring in da- other data sets that might add some interesting context to it. Like, you know, one, one example is one of the layers in, in the FieldKit org visualization on the map is uh, we pull from the native lands API. So you could see the indigenous people that lived on that land that you're measuring and, and what, what tribes and, and org, you know groups there were in that land in the past. And that's not something that you typically see paired with environmental data in a lot of the existing systems out there. That's amazing. And, and if I were to join the field kit community and I shared my data and I said, oh, with this, you know, with this historic data set of indigenous communities and, and people's needs to be beefed up, or I have yet another complementary data set that I've created to go to add to this, then that would be shared if I wanted it to be with everybody else. So yeah. that everybody could start building that database and start finding new insights from it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and, you know, the, the other thing is we're thinking about how how these big data, data sets are, are shared and, and managed. And we're actually building in like the back end of a field kit, the, the DAP protocol, which is a, like a distributed web protocol. And right. it, it offers a lot of advantages from all the time I've spent out in the field with researchers is a lot of times researchers want to quickly share data between each other, but they don't. The way that they usually do that is they have to go back and and upload it to the cloud and then somebody else has to download it from that and be able to kind of share that data. But in in places where the internet isn't lightning fast, that is an absolutely frustrating thing to do. 
what DAT gives you is this opportunity to kind of share between users, uh, you know, since it's distributed web sort of stuff, like just straight across to users without having to rely on on uploading and downloading it, which is quite nice, you know. And so we're so we're we're thinking through like what are all these different ways that we can have people use their data and share their data and, and bring value out of that that data that we're not seeing other players in the environmental monitoring space doing right now. And are you finding that you have to do some education and outreach? Like how much are you sort of going out and doing user research and they're saying, oh, I'm having trouble moving my data around or getting the data that I need to talk to these other data sets? And how much are you, because you have such a technical background, how much are you kind of having to do that education to say, you know, one reason why you're frustrated by this system is because it's not open enough? Yeah, I mean, we've done a huge amount of that. I I mean, most of last year, we we actually brought in three different uh, people at different phases to help us think through that, the the, the needs of the users and, and do a very proper kind of user uh, research uh, process around FieldKit to make sure that what we're actually building, where we you know interviewed a ton of people, did a massive survey, um, and um, built personas and did kind of all the things that you're supposed to do um, is that sort of the process. And it, and, it, and it taught us a lot of things. One thing that it taught us was, you know, we were building this tool that was focused around uh, providing capabilities to field scientists. But we found that there was like quite a huge amount of excitement in different areas like citizen science, like education, environmental justice. There was a bunch of other areas that could use these tools that we were creating that we weren't really necessarily initially thinking of them as the user in mind. And that has, has since kind of influenced a lot about what we've built and the way that we have users interfacing with the product and, and kind of the level of understanding that we're expecting people to have when they're using these sorts of tools. It's been phenomenal because I think we've, we're, we've really figured out through that process like how to build something that, that has a very low floor so you know students are able to use it, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's something that's going to frustrate a very kind of academically advanced professor or something, right? And and only through that process have, have we really been able to understand that. It's also kind of helped us understand what we wanted to build with FieldKit. So, you know, we, we put out this survey about, you know, what kind of sensors do you want? What's your background? Like, why do you want FieldKit? Asking these sorts of questions. Um, we just put it out online and kind of tweeted about it and stuff. And we we're expecting to get, you know, maybe like less than 100 responses to it or something like that and we actually had 1200 responses to that survey just by tweeting it out we didn't do anything other than just tweet it out which is it shows that there's like a desire for some better tools in this space and it was actually really encouraging to see yeah i remember in part of the work i was doing looking into data literacy curriculum the la unified school district has one of the first curricula for data literacy for high schoolers. And mm-hmm. so they're really trying to kind of redefine the math curriculum for high school students. And one of the things they do is they teach them data science. And it's an intensive course. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, know, you could run a couple of college students through this, and they'd definitely be challenged by it. But it created that sense when you talk to the students who went through it, of 
you know, they had this experience of realizing that the world around them was measurable and that maybe nobody else was measuring the things that they were experiencing, whether mm-hmm. that's the air quality in their neighborhood or the water quality in coming out of their tap, any of those things. So, you know, the, this type of open conservation technology has urban applications as well as, you know, rainforest and desert applications. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And, and there's definitely better tools that are that are necessary in that space. Because if you think about like a lot of these citizen science or even just these urban urban applications, like the the willingness to spend that sort of money on what, uh, you know, on the, on one of the expensive tools that is already out there, it's just not there just because like maybe it's out of their reach or or it just doesn't make sense to spend that, that much money on on a sensor system. Um, but if you could build that using new new technology methods, bring it in a lot cheaper, then you could really get a lot of people using that in ways that you didn't quite expect them to use it before. And that's what I'm really excited about uh, FieldKit to do. I want to talk a little about art and design in this work, if I can, because I was really taken by this drawing that Christine Liu posted recently on her Twitter feed. I don't know if you follow her. She does two photon art. and She's also a biology researcher up here in the Bay Area. And she's talking about the Venn diagram between art and science and what it means to do both of those. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about your work and your products, and it's visible on your Shaw Selby website too, is this appreciation for the aesthetic of a thing, for Mm -hmm. the way it feels to hold it, the way it feels to interact with it. It's not just what can you crank out as cheap and easy, but it should be a delight to interact with in the same way that some of the finest, most high-end products are. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, I think about this stuff all the time. And with FieldKit, we've really tried to give it its own voice in that whole aspect. That sort of stuff matters. And, you know, when you talk to people who are deep in the engineering or deep in the science world, a lot of times they they kind of look down on that sort of work. But But it really helps in making it more accessible to a lot of people. It really helps to kind of illustrate what you're trying to do there. And, you know, I think there's organizations that that you can look at the things that they do, say, Apple or Google, and you know exactly by looking at it that it's an Apple or Google product. And that gives you some inherent feelings and trust and, and, you know, belief in in that tool, right? And, And so we wanted FieldKit to have that same sort of thing. We wanted it to to both feel like it is something that is rigorous and reliable and that you can actually do real science on it, but at the same time, something that doesn't feel stark and cold and, uh, and, and very kind of the way a lot of the tools are now. They, they seem, if you were to just give it to even a young scientist, they would be intimidated by the look of that. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, there's something about investing in that level of design to make things enjoyable to use, to make things satisfying to use, that in this space of environmental monitoring and conservation, which you know is not a space that tends to get a ton of, of funding, it's a way of saying you know, what you do matters, that yeah. this is worth collecting, that your work is worth appreciating, and you don't just have to take what's kind of at the bottom of the barrel. You deserve something that's open and satisfying to use. Yeah, I mean, it's, and just beyond that, like you're just more likely to use it if it has had that sort of, that sort of thought behind it, right? Absolutely. I I think one of the things I get the most excited about is, is thinking about 
how science is done in maybe some of like the the highest biodiversity areas on the planet and and just the way that it, it works out a lot of these high biodiversity areas on the planet end up being in these countries that are you know very resource constrained or they don't like the the people within those countries don't have a lot of money to be able to use these sorts of tools and so one of the things that i get most excited about when i think about field kit in the future is when we could start to see the science that comes out of these you know, these very pristine rainforests or these protected areas in sub-Saharan Africa. And that science is not, not driven by professors and, and, and principal investigators at the, you know, Stanford's and Duke's and Yale's of the world, but it's actually driven by the, the, the people coming out of the University of Botswana or, you know, universities in Cameroon or all of these places. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about giving the tools to people out there that really want to use it, but like they just can't have access to the things that people have nowadays. So I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff that comes out of that. I think one of the other things I'm, I'm really curious about is, is stuff that we've seen to a, to a smaller extent on other projects, but it's, it's the kind of insights that come when you can create a tool that a lot of people have. Um, and, and you can start to see these, um, these, these, these patterns emerge or these, these insights about how the world's changing or important things that we need to be paying attention to around the world um, that come only once you have, you know, 20,000 people measuring the same thing across the globe. And that's something that's like, it's, it's quite hard to do just because of the availability of these sorts of things. I'm going to ask the, the sort of the big underlying question, like, does does data still change people's minds? Like, if we get all this data, is it, are we just, yay, we have this data, and, and is it still really able to change decisions? Are we still living in a world where data counts? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say data changes people's minds. I would say that people change people's minds, um, and sometimes they use data to be inspired to do that, right? So, so I, I mean, I, I think that, like, yes, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of places that we work and conservify that data will entirely change people's mind because there's just absolutely no, no data in, in those places right so like just getting a better understanding of what's happening and at least the, the 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 folks that we work with who are in the field they feel like that getting that sort of data is going to empower them um, it's going to give them something that they can point to when they're when they're yelling you know to, for change, and and that's something that they feel like they don't have right now. So so maybe maybe it's not going to change things in in the Los Angeleses of the world, but but could potentially change it in, in places of the Amazon and, and other areas. I wouldn't rule out Los Angeles. That's a complex ecosystem of its own. For yeah, sure. right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting too because like you know, environmental justice is is such a fundamentally important thing, and we're going to see even more of it in a in a world that's impacted by climate change right and so so we're going to have to be able to kind of tell these stories in a way that is that is trusted and accessible uh and i think you know that that sort of environmental data is a big part of that and it's personal too you know it totally. makes it personal when you have a connection to data that can be verified and shared well it is a great field to be in if you are someone who is curious and excited to get creative with new partners. And so I'm glad you're getting to keep that excitement and thrill, even as you push through these last few hours, weeks of pushing out field kit. So keep up the enthusiasm as you get this over the finish line. Yeah, no, it's, 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 I, I don't think I'll ever be able to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, thanks, Shah. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for taking time out to go down to your lab and get on a podcast. Anything else you want to say before we close it out? One thing I did want to say, and, and you know, this is something that I think about quite a lot, is you know, conservation te- technology is a very quickly moving discipline right now. There's a lot of people who are kind of coming into it and, and thinking about these things. And it's interesting to try and solve some of these environmental and wildlife problems by creating a solution where you know that that user, the, the conservationist or, or the, the scientist that's on the ground out there is is the number one user that we care about. In, in the past, a lot of these, the tech that would be brought into these spaces, it was always like adapted from another area, you know, defense technologies or, or like some industry that we pulled over or we used for it. But the thing that I get excited about with that is is as this, this thing's growing, I see more and more people who want to contribute to it. And I want to express that there's a lot of opportunity for that sort of help. And that if anybody who's listening is, in, is inspired or interested in conservation technology, there's tons of organizations that would love to work with, with these people. And you don't have to be a software engineer or a hardware engineer to do that. Designers, artists, musicians, all these people can help in in making the work that we do better and 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 we we love to work with them so so reach out and and kind of follow us and try and if there's anybody who's listening that that wants has an idea and wants to know who to talk to about it i'm happy to help thanks for joining us today this episode was produced by melanie scroggins and brought to you by magnets specifically the magnets that are embedded in the bodies of fish like salmon that allow them to sense the Earth's magnetic fields and return back to the streams where they spawned at the end of their lives. Yay, magnets, and yay, salmon.